0: Okay. Okay. Today is February the eighth, two thousand eleven. Don't have any announcements. Anything? Are we going to work tomorrow? No. Going to rain tomorrow. Okay. That's not this week. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, giving us another day. Help us to not take any of them for granted nor your phenomenal grace. We, we recognize that we are here to reflect your glory and we can't do that in ignorance. So we have your mighty word to feast on this evening. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have may, may have seen the Screen I'm going to show you. I got this as an email. <coughs> it says, America's problem. And it says, the current, the current financial crisis explained in a single picture. You see all these people standing around? One guy down here working. This is a human resource manager, marketing manager, logistic manager, a communication manager, project manager, um, infra- I can't read that. It's another kind of supervisor, a manager, and a product manager. And you have Jose down in here working. This financial crisis is forcing the state and local agencies to make some tough decisions. If things continue for much longer, there's going to be a real risk that we may have to lay off Jose. That's Jose, <laughs> oh, we gotta have a sense of humor, right? I don't know. I'll just press on uh <coughs> one quick note before we. Uh, go forward. It's a, one paragraph in the New American by Gary Benoit. And I guess it goes a little bit with what the picture we saw here. It says, uh, Gary says, we have had it so good for so long with all of our toys to occupy our free time that we have let our, go- uh, let our government govern themselves and as a result... The country is broke and record numbers of people are losing their jobs, their homes, and their toys. This leads to anger and the call to throw the bums out. The problem with accomplishing throwing them out is the fact that incumbents have every advantage and so members of Congress spend their entire working careers as politicians, filling their pockets, voting themselves raises, Enjoy high end medical and retirement plans. I don't think our founding fathers had in mind a professional politician system running the country. I just, every time I think about how our political leaders don't subject themselves to the laws that they foist upon us, is a disgrace. Well, they don't have medicare or medicaid or uh, social security and they have a what is normally called a golden parachute but i don't want to linger there i just thought i'd throw that in because i have uh, a lot to go over tonight if you take your bibles and open to second thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 12 Second Thessalonians, chapter 1. Well, let's start reading in verse 11 because verse 12 would be just actually break, uh, breaking in the middle of a sentence here. Second Thessalonians 1.11. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. That's where we ended last time, but let's go on to verse 12. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look up here. We ended on work of faith. Some people don't realize that these two go together. They think, and correctly they think, that Eternal salvation and work are mutually exclusive. They don't have anything to do with each other. But you get outside of the realm of that salvific uh, application, then work has very much to do with our lives. We found, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are created unto good works. They just don't have anything to do with our eternal salvation. So we have work of faith and... Uh, I pretty well explained that that first part. Work of faith and then we have with power. The, pro- the question is, whose power? And of course, we're talking about God's power. We really have no power. I think many times we think that we have more control over things than we really do. I've been reminded of that lately, just like probably you have from time to time. When everything's working fine you think, boy, I've got everything under control. But that doesn't last, does it? Always something is going to break down, something is going to not work anymore, and then you see how little control you actually have. And in the society that we live in and the sophisticated technological devices that we depend on, uh, when they go down, it's not like it used to be. It used to be when a car broke down, you could pull it, you could... Maybe just push it under a tree and open the hood, and he had all this room. And it's just pretty well basic. And there were a lot of people who were called shade tree mechanics because they would literally put their car under a shade tree and they would be able to change the spark plugs, change the oil, uh, do miscellaneous things. Today, when you open the hood, there's not room even to slide one little finger hardly any place in there. It's completely loaded. It's computerized. And so you don't see guys out in their front yard with their car under the tree anymore because it takes sophisticated gadgetry and devices just to be able to tell you what's wrong with your car. My little gray truck is in the shop right now. Wouldn't start. And I figured everything I could. Danny came over. He was helping me for a while. And... Guess what it was? Danny, guess what it was? It wasn't anything we thought it was. I have a five-speed on the floor, and you have to push the clutch in for it to start. Well, there's some kind of switch under there called a negative switch that when you push that clutch down uh, to make everything work, you have to push the clutch down. Well, that's what was wrong. I'm so glad I took it to the guy, because if I had tried to fix it myself, I would already be in the padded cell by now. The the worse it gets, the less patience I have, that type of thing. So we don't really have that much power, do we? I mean, our control. So we have to be reminded of that from time to time. This verse does it in spades. We went to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13 that says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, you see the word salvation. We went over this in detail last time. This has nothing to do with going to heaven. It's talking about being delivered in time, in our experience here on earth. And we have to work that out with fear and trembling because as soon as we start thinking that things depend upon us, we start getting in over our head Very quickly. And it's God who... This is what's so wonderful. We can't even take credit for when we have the desire to do good because that's not from us. That's God in us that is working to will to do good. We are basically selfish by nature. What's in it for me? The heck with anybody else. It's all about me. That is what we naturally are. And for us to have thoughtfulness, concern, and love towards other people. Sacrificial love. We can't crow about that because that's God working in us to do what is going to be pleasing to Him. John 15:5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Nada. Nothing. Zilch. And it says... He who abides in me. Now, we know that we abide in him in a judicial, positional sense. We look at that as being in the top circle. Nothing can change that. But this is referring to an experiential sense. We can go in and out of abiding in him. He always abides in us. But when we are in carnality, we are not in an experiential fashion still abiding in him. We think that we can we can handle it ourselves so you can't do anything apart from him apart from his power and then the last verse we went over was philippians 4:13 which is the opposite of what we just saw is i can do all things through him who strengthens me so we can't do anything on our own that is productive and effective and glorifying god but we can do anything When we are working on His strength, when we're operating by His strength, there's nothing we can't do. Okay, now this is where we start today. We hadn't gone over this. Uh, There's a huge difference between divine good, works of faith, that Scripture commands us to produce in the power provided by the filling of the Holy Spirit, and human good, works in which men can boast, produced by the old sin nature and ignorant perversion of Scripture. If you really are grace-oriented, this is easy for you to understand because you recognize that in and of yourself, even when you do good things, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the wrong motivation. Usually it's to glorify self. Usually it is to assuage your approbation lust. You, you, you want others to think well of you. You want to get ahead. You want to be promoted, whatever it may be. So, <coughs> excuse me. We call that human good. Human good because we're operating on human devices which are not pleasing to God. Isaiah 64, 6, the best that we have to offer God, our best righteousness in God's eyes is as filthy rags because they are far from being perfect. Anything that the old sin nature produces, which the only thing it produces is sin and human good, is very offensive to God. And God will judge that human good for believers at the judgment seat of Christ, for unbelievers at the great white throne. And so it is yet to be judged, but we need to distinguish between the two when we're looking at doing things that are pleasing to God. It has to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God works through us. He rewards that. It's pleasing to Him. When we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, we're not doing good things Sometimes. But it's wrong motivation. It's not through him. And he rejects it and it's just going to be obliterated, burned at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, verse 12. This is the last verse in chapter 1. And then we're going to go into chapter 2. Chapter 2 is huge, as we'll see. So, the last verse. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. That's the purpose. If you want to have a generic all-inclusive reason for us remaining on planet Earth after we're saved, it's that. God is glorifying Himself through what He can do for us and through us. So let's take this apart. The first phrase, in order that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you have the Greek word for glorified in dox amazomai. Say that one real quick ten times. That's E-N-D-O-X-A-Z-O-M-A-I. It's a verb and it's the aorist passive subjunctive. That tells us a lot. The, it's the concept of aorist and it's in the passive voice that we may be glorified, that the Lord may be glorified in you. See, it's not something that we do. It's something that we receive. That's the passive voice. That glorifies God. Do you understand that? Do you, this, I know this is Greek grammar and so forth, but don't miss this. The passive voice means that we are glorified for what God does for and through us. Not what we do to impress Him. Furthermore, it is in the subjunctive mood that means this is only a potential Not all believers glorify God. In fact, very few do. Because you have to know something about God. You have to know something about the spiritual dynamics of the church age. You have to be able to connect uh, connect the dots before you're going to be able to glorify Him. It means to be held in high esteem, glorified or honored. Then, of course, I just talked about the subjunctive mood means that the Lord may or may not be glorified in us. It all depends on whether we take advantage of the grace provisions made available to us. Every believer has grace provisions. And because of that, there won't be any believer that will be able to have any excuses when they stand before Jesus Christ and He asks them, what did you do with the grace that I provided for you every single day? And there's going to be a lot of embarrassment. There's going to be a lot of bonfires of people who are trying to impress God by what they do because they don't understand this passive voice. God is glorified for what He does for us and through us. Remember that? that t- really, that takes the pressure off of us. We really don't have that type of pressure on us because God is the one that needs to be glorified. Remember I said uh, when we were in uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter? In God's plan, He gets the glory and we get the what? The blessing. I'm so glad y'all remember that. Made my day. So, there is tense as an ingressive heiress emphasizing the beginning or entrance into a state. <coughs> Excuse me. It could be translated in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may begin now to be glorified in you. It, the ingressive means that it's emphasizing its starting up or beginning. It was the desire of Paul that the glory of God would be manifested in and through the Thessalonian believers both immediately, as we see in verse 12, and at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 10. Remember verse 10? Let's look at verse 10. Now verse 9 is talking about the negative side. This is when Jesus Christ returns, second advent. This is verse 9. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now, these, that's the, the negative side. But the positive side is when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, that would be when He returns in glory, being glorified, second advent, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So, this is saying that the Thessalonians' believers needed to immediately start glorifying God in their experiential uh, sanctification in that process as growing up spiritually then, plus they could look forward to be glorified when He comes at the second advent on that day with the rest of His saints. And then the last part of this says, and you in Him. So l- let's look at it again. Look at your, in your Bibles, verse 12 in order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. And He's glorified how? For what God is able to do for you and through you. That's how He's glorified. And you in Him. Now, this is the phrase we're looking at now. at the second advent, believers are glorified by their association with Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We receive honor and glory by virtue of being His bride. When Jesus comes back, Second Advent, we are—can you imagine it? We are going to be the bride of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How high an honor is that? There will literally be a wedding ceremony. In Ephesians chapter 5, there is a comparison. God is making a comparison between the physical marriage of a husband and a wife with the spiritual relationship of the church-age believers and Himself. And actually, the marriage relationship here on earth of believers reflect what's going to be taking place when we return with him as his bride. And that's what it means. And you in him. We're going to be glorified because we are in intimate association with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we have the very final phrase in chapter 1, which ends verse 12. <coughs> Let's look at verse 12 again to get it all together. In order that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. We're going to be remember, we're going to be glorified in him when we return. We're associated with him. That's how we're going to be glorified in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What this last phrase is saying more than anything else, this high honor that we have to be associated with Jesus Christ, like no other saints of any other time frame, are going to experience the high honor to be glorified in Him. In that association, what we're seeing is all because of what? One word, grace. Always it's grace. So everything in God's plan for our lives is linked to grace. We have the opportunity to glorify Christ now and be glorified That would be later, at second advent, because of him when he returns. That's what we've seen so far. Now, what I've got, and this is going to end this whole chapter, but I want to look at this. When I'm talking about grace, let's look at this grace. Let's look at what we're talking about. It starts with common grace. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit when a person is an unbeliever and they hear the gospel. What is the gospel? It is spiritual phenomenon, is it not? It's it's something that is spiritual. And an unbeliever is what? Yeah, they're spiritually dead. How can they understand spiritual things when they're spiritually dead? That's where common grace comes in. And we have Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 through 17. This is when uh, Christ asked Peter, "Who Who do you say I am? And he said, You are Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Christ said, uh, this you, what you say is true but you didn't say it on your own it was given to you by God to understand this. So that is a a, a ministry of the Holy Spirit to make who Christ is clear and perspicuous to an unbeliever. We also have in first Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5 let's just turn back a few pages. We'll be right there. First Thessalonians chapter, 1 and verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. But here, here's, the, here's the pivotal part. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, full conviction. In power in the Holy excuse me, in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the Holy Spirit is there to convict and to make it understandable to you. So even as we were unbelievers the grace of God reaches out and enables us to understand the gospel. I don't want to spend a long time with this, but there's a lot of people that get this mixed up. The Calvinists say they understand that a person is spiritually dead, that they are, what what do we say, that they are totally what? Depraved, that they can't even... Of course, the the, the heresy there is it's true that we're totally depraved. But it doesn't mean that we're totally unable to accept a gift, which is faith, I mean, excuse me, which is grace after we believe. But what, see, they understand this. But rather than recognizing that the Holy Spirit acts as a human spirit that the unbeliever does not have and makes the gospel clear they go in an erroneous path and say, well, God actually gives them the faith to believe. And that's, that skews the whole thing because the next thing you know, they're saying, well, God will choose this one to give it to. He doesn't choose to give it to them and it, it just is a train wreck. But it is true that no one would be able to understand the gospel apart from this common grace, the Holy Spirit, acting as a human spirit so that an unbeliever can understand spiritual phenomenon even when they're spiritually dead. And I gave you two verses there to substantiate it. The second thing is efficacious grace. And we have this in John chapter 16, verse 7 through 8. Let's go there. How many of you know what John 16 is about? Anybody know what John 16 is about? You should already know in, in verse 7 and following, what, what's happening here? This is Christ saying, I have to go away, but He's going to send the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Now, burn that into your memory because this is a very important part of Scripture. John 16 has to do with the God is going to send the Holy Spirit. John 14 has to do with Christ telling His disciples starting with the first verse that is necessary for him to go away. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house, as many mansions and so forth. That's John 14. So those two chapters, don't try to memorize a whole lot of things, but at least in your own mind, know where to go when you're in John. You go to John 14 where Christ is telling His disciples, He's giving them a hint of what's going to happen when He leaves planet Earth and that He's coming back. John 16 has to do with Christ telling them about the Holy Spirit. And it starts in verse 7. So, and, and by the way, what would you do? Where would you go to find out some of the most fantastic promises with regards to salvation in the book of John? What chapter would you go to? Three, right. You know, and everybody, uh, I, I tell the kids, I'm having the kids memorize some uh, salvation verses. And they all want to, uh, I give them a choice. So I say, go ahead. They all want to do John 3.16. I said, no. That was not going to count. I think even unbelievers know John 3.16. They can look at the Super Bowl or somewhere else and they're holding up a plaque, John 3.16. No, but John 3 is loaded. John 3.18 and John 3.36. If you don't know those two verses and you don't have them memorized, it's time to do so. They are so powerful. That in Ephesians 2.8 and 9. If you just knew those three verses and Romans 4, 5, do we need to do that one again? Oh, I see some worried looks on faces. But to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or credited as what? Righteousness. Now, most people that you come in contact with in this world think you have to work your way to heaven. So when they do, you can say, well, I've got a problem here. The Bible says in Romans 4, or 5, to the one who does not work but believes. But you're saying that it's one to work. Now explain that verse to me. See how powerful just one verse can be? I don't know how I got on that tangent, but we're in John 16 right now. Verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper... That's the Holy Spirit shall not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you, in verse 8, and he, when he comes, will convict the world. Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That convicting ministry. When you're convicted and you believe, the Holy Spirit takes that blip of faith and makes it effective for salvation. And you know what that means? If you understand grace, especially efficacious grace, then it does away with the nutty idea that you have to have a certain quality of faith, or you have to have a certain quantity of faith in order to be saved, to be able to go to heaven, to have eternal life. All those factors have to be met. And that is all balderdash. It doesn't mean a thing. Because I've said this how many times? Y'all probably get tired of me saying it, but I can't say it too many times. The smallest measure of faith, whatever it is, directed towards Jesus Christ results in what? Eternal life. The greatest measure of faith that is directed towards anyone else results in what? Condemnation. Efficacious grace. The next one is logistical grace. We have. I'm not going to go through all these. You can write down the addresses if you want to. Luke chapter 12, verse uh, 22 through 30. And it's talking about the lily of how it doesn't work and spin. and uh, God takes care of it and He's going to take care of you and so forth. That's Luke 12, 22 through 30. And 2 Corinthians 9, 8. There's a lot of logistical grace verses. Logistical grace simply means that God is going to provide everything that you need in order to glorify Him as believers. Food, clothing, transportation, blood pumping up into your brain so you can think. All the little bones in your ears and rattling around. Everything that goes on is working. You don't have to come to Bible class. Okay, let's see. What are the bones in my ears? Are they working? Check. What about the gray matter? Is it working? No, we don't have to do any of that, do we? Everything that we need, He takes care of logistical grace. That's the kind of God we have, a great parent. The next thing, of course, all this, what are we talking about here? We're talking about in order to glorify God, we depend upon what? His grace. And these are some of the specifics of His grace that have to be met for us, not only to survive, but to glorify Him. The Word of God. And we have 1 Peter 1.25, 2 Timothy 3.16-17, Hebrews 4.12. These verses you would recognize or you should recognize what's Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is what? Alive and powerful. It says quick, but it really means alive. So you know about you have to have the Word of God. Then the next thing is the grace system of perception. We have this in John 16.13. Are you all still in John 16? Verse 13. But when He, that is the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into, what? All truth. For He will not speak of His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. Now you'll notice all the... Personal pronouns, masculine, which means the Holy Spirit is not a force; it's a member of the Trinity. It's a person. So he's what he does is to train us to teach us. None of us can brag for the about <clears throat> how much doctrine we have. If you do have a lot of doctrine or however much doctrine you have, you should be greatly appreciative for it. But you can't strut about and crow think, look at me, boy, I must really be brilliant. I I must really be on the beam to have this much doctrine. No. Because it's not your intellect. It's not your education. What it really boils down to is your volition. God will take you further than you can ever imagine if you have the positive volition, he will take you there. He will he will reveal and and disclose more and more things to you and you just will be astounded. It's your volition, not your mentality or your intelligence. We have first Corinthians chapter one verse nineteen through first Corinthians two verse sixteen. This is Paul really putting them putting them on the spot. Well, what do you have that God didn't give you? Who are you? You think you have something? That's what these verses are talking about. And it, and it discloses that it is the grace system of perception. It's not to the wise. It's not to the mighty who are called. Then we have another grace provision is the local church. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25. And this is an admonition to us to... Don't forsake the assembly together, as is the habit of some. Some we're, were, were not assembling together. And, and when we get to chapter 2, I can tell by the time we won't get to it tonight, but there is that word there is epi sunogego. It's only used twice, and it's used in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll connect the two. It's important. But anyway, that's about the, the, God provides the local church. And there is a dynamic working when you're here face to face. And I found a long time ago, at least for me, it was much easier for me to get up and drag my bones down there to Bible class live than it was to hear it over a tape recorder. Well, I can always do it tomorrow night. I've got such, and such. But when you know that class is going to be... At six forty-five, we start singing, and it's going to be unless the weather bad. Somebody's going to be here teaching what ninety-nine percent of the time. And you, you, you know, people who have to struggle—am I going to class or not—are in trouble spiritually. They're in trouble. There should be no, there should be no decision making. If you understand the importance of growing in grace and knowledge, if you understand why you're here, if you understand what's coming and that you're being prepared now, if you understand these things, you're not going to ever have to say, well, are we going or are we not? That never happens around my house. I hope it never happens. Well, I know you say, well, Yeah, are the pastor. Happened. But it shouldn't happen around your house either. There's no question. If it's there, I'm going to be there. That's why I'm here. That's why God left me on my planet. on oh, this planet is for me to redeem the time, and He's provided the right church. Then he's provided the right pastor teacher. We have this in first Peter chapter five, verse three, Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse seventeen. Now Hebrews chapter five verse three has a phrase in there he's talking to a pastor and he says, To to feed, I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying feed the flock allotted to your charge. This group God has allotted to my charge as the pastor of this church. And it never stays the same. You know, sometimes more people come and there'll be more here. And sometimes people move away or they get mad at me and they leave or whatever it is. But there is an allotted flock for a particular pastor. How do you know if you're at the right church? How do you know if I'm your right pastor or not? Well, if you're growing and you are, you, that mo- momentum is moving forward, then you know. Hey, it, and if it's, it, it, if there's a fit, you'll know it. If not, you need to move on, and go find your right pastor, because when you're in the right local church under the right pastor, you are able to grow more than any other place or with any other person. Because that's the one that God designed for you. It's not to say you can't learn something elsewhere. Furthermore, the people there are going to become your best friends. They're going to be closer to your own family. When these things are happening, you don't have to wonder, am I at the right church? Do I have the right pastor? It's happening. I mean, we don't wake up every morning and say, okay, uh, is that still the right church or not? I mean, Do we need to go somewhere else? That doesn't happen, does it? I mean, it's a fit, and this is a grace provision by God. Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse actually seven and seventeen speaks more of the pastor's authority. But he has this: I only have authority over this flock. I have people come to me that are under other pastors, and they'll run something by me, and I always think, man, I really—I'll answer their questions. I really rather not address this so much because I'm not their authority. I'm not their pastor. I'd rather them go ask their pastor, but a lot of times their pastor won't talk to them. Or, I don't know what, they just come and I have to decide. The next one is, of course, Super Grace, John 10, 10, uh, James 4, 6. How many people do you know that are believers that don't even know that there's such a thing as Super Grace? I don't know, what. what would you speculate the percentage of believers that, are evangelical, going to churches, even Bible churches throughout the country, how many of them know that there's more than just the get-by grace? Well, most of them don't even know there's logistical grace. But some of them do. Some of them understand, well, God is my heavenly parent. He's taking care of me. But they don't know, very few know that God wants to give us more. Why does He want to give us more? Because it glorifies Him to give us and bless us right under Satan's nose. We're in the devil's world. We're in enemy territory. And when God gives extra, super, abundant blessings to someone in the devil's world, what do you think Satan is doing? You think he's a happy camper about that? He's going to do everything within his power to bring you down. He can't do it unless you allow him to. Super grace. Uh in James 4, it says He gives greater grace. What does that mean? There's levels of grace. How many people that you, uh, you've heard sing amazing grace don't know anything about grace outside the words of that song? It sounds good, and they think, yeah, uh, grace has to be a good thing. And that's as far as it goes. But see, if you know that there's something more, and that you can get it, what are you gonna do? You ought to go for the prize, right? This is not just this is a bona fide offer that God is giving to every believer. Hey, I wanna give you more, because the more I give you, the more I'm what? Glorified. But He is not going to give you super grace. He can't give you super grace. If you're a dumb butt, mediocre, stupid, spiritually ignorant, Believer, he would be doing an injustice to you because you would think, oh great, uh, I've won the spiritual lottery now. Boy, I really don't have to worry about going to church now. i got all my ducks in a row. Dying grace. Psalm 116, verse 15. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five. Anybody know what 1 Corinthians 15, 55 is about? See, I'm, I'm going to start challenging y'all about... Y'all ought to be able to recognize these verses and at least know something about what it's about. What is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about? It starts out, and Paul is giving a wonderful dissertation on salvation and on the gospel. And then when you get to the latter verses, the 45, 50, right in there, it's talking about, "Oh death, where is your sting? Remember that? Oh death. you know, He's not afraid of death. Why? Because... God, through Jesus Christ, has given us what? The victory over death. That's dying grace. Philippians 1, 21, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Listen, you ought to jot those verses down because if you go to visit someone in the hospital that is dying, you can blubber with them and pat them on the head, on the hand, and everything's going to be fine. But they need the Word. They need this. This is what you can have. Well, if they're dying, <laughs> it's, I guess it might be a little late. You can't tell someone that God will give super grace if they don't even know what dispensationalism is, if they don't know what how to be spiritual or anything. But at least we know one thing that a person who has dying grace does not have is what? Yes, fear. No fear whatsoever. Why? Because we're all going to die anyway, aren't we? Huh? Unless Christ returns, we are dead meat. Every one of us. We're going to be dead as a hammer. Physically, we all have to go through that. But for those who know what's coming, it's just a. All right. I don't. I don't know when I'm going to die. That's in God's hands. He's going to transition me from this veil of tears into being face to face with the Lord. Coming back with Him, seeing all these things that He's going to do. And no longer having your cars break down. You know, and aches and pains and all of them. man, it's not life is not easy, is it? So the the, the what is it in first Corinthians chapter fifteen, what does it say in verse what is fifty 55, 54, right in there? The sting of death is sin. Right? Let's go there. I want you to mark it. First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is mighty. 1 Corinthians 15 is a mighty chapter. I can't tell you how many theological journals that I've read articles on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a lot of debate about it. It's a long chapter. Look at verse 51. We're talking about dying grace verse 51 1 Corinthians 15:51 Behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep that means die but we shall all be changed We're all going some of us are going to be translated some of us are going to be resurrected You understand what I mean by that Okay In the moment of twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's, that's what I'm talking about. The dead are going to be resurrected from the dead. And we, if we're alive when Christ returns, are going to be translated. We're going to be changed. We're going to receive this imperishable body. Verse 43. Uh, excuse me, 53. Uh, for the, this perishable must put on imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that, that is written. Look at this. Death is swallowed up in what? Victory. And then we have the famous... I don't know how many times I've said this at funerals. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is in sin, and the power... Of sin is the law. But verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the what? The victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the victory is not having any fear over death. It's the fear of death that captures people, imprisons them. And we have no fear because we know what's coming, coming next. We have all the promises that God has given us. That's the ultimate test. But for the mature believer, it's the highlight. God is showing him off that he's not afraid. He can't wait to see God's faithfulness, but now in another complete arena and or, or area. You know, I'm not saying that we are... Most people say, oh, yes, um, I, want, I want to go to heaven. I just don't want to go today. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Well... Dying is a fearful thing in the sense that none of us can explain what it's about. None of us have been there. And all we see what is left, which is a dead, decaying corpse. And that is very unpleasant and and, and, and distasteful to us. But that's just what's left behind. The real person is already gone. And we understand that. God promises that that is so. But when will you find out for absolute certain? If you die. And so God has arranged it to where your death is going to be either a horrible, frightful thing, or else it can be the highlight because you're saying, okay, now I get to see Jesus. Now I get to walk those... those uh, Streets of gold. Now I get to be with Christ when He comes. See, you can be thinking that way. In other words, it's the faith that takes the sting out of death. Sin, uh, fear is a sin, and that's the sting. So we have nothing to fear. We have everything to look forward to. And that is what we have in the dying grace in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, chap, uh, verse fifty-five. And I'm just about out of out of time. Did you have something back there? Okay. <laughs> That's one of the neat things. <laughs> I was just asking my wife. She had her hand. Up. She said, I'll, ask, I'll ask you at home. So we'll press on. Then we have surpassing grace, which is the ultimate. Uh, the super grace that we see there lasts for however however long a time that you've grown up spiritually and God is able to pour more and more blessings in your cup overflow, that might be a a day, a week, a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I don't know what it may be, but it's it's a temporal amount of time. Dying grace is the same thing. It could be just in a moment. Some people go out and they're gone. Sometimes it's a lingering thing, whatever the time is, but neither one of those, because they're both temporal, compares with the ultimate, which is surpassing grace, because that grace lasts forever. How about that? God wants to bless you and He wants to bless me beyond our wildest dreams, not only in this life, forever. And forever, what does that mean for Him? He's glorified forever because of what He does for us, all the blessings that we get. Psalm 23, 5 through 6. You know 23rd Psalm? 1 Corinthians 2, 9, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. All have to do with super grace. So what I've given you here, common grace, efficacious grace, logistical grace, the Word of God, the grace system of perception, the right local church, the right pastor, teacher, super grace, dying grace, and surpassing grace, It's just a brief outline of some of the grace that is given to every one of us so that we can do what? Glorify the Lord Jesus Christ for what He can do for us and through us. That concludes chapter 1. And so we can get prepared for... Thessalonians chapter 2. See, I can tell by your look on your face. You don't know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Thessalonians chapter 2 is a big chapter. It has everything to do with the rapture, putting it in its proper place, and eschatologically it is one of the biggest chapters, if not the biggest chapter. I won't say it's the biggest, but it's certainly one of the biggest in the bible and i was reading i have about i don't know how many uh, commentaries and journals and so forth and they were saying this is for a lot of people a lot of it's, it's a very confusing chapter at least the first 10 verses the first 10 verses is what i'm speaking of but we're going to dissect it and you're going to see you know the closer you look the more the more sure and secure you are in what you believe that's what it's that's what it should be If there's any red flags that go up, we need to handle those. We need to nail those down because we're going to see how important it is that we don't follow the suit of the Thessalonian believers who were shaken in their composure. They were, they had just lost it. And we'll find out why next time. Let's close. Father, thank You for this time You've given us to feed upon Your Word and all of this grace that You have given us. We thank you for that grace, and you th- we thank you for revealing it to us. We thank you for the doctrine that you've allowed us to inculcate. We can take no credit for it whatsoever, but we are so thankful for what you've done already. And there's so much more that we need. And we have complete and total trust that you will provide that also. So there's nothing for us to fear, nothing for us to dread, everything to look forward to. And we thank you for this and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.